1: Hello and welcome to Seriously, the new statesman podcast that takes pop culture seriously. I'm Caroline Crampton and I'm Anna Leskovich.
0: This week we're talking about the Philip Pullman novel La Belle Sauvage and the new series of the Netflix comedy Crazy Ex-Girlfriend.
1: We've also watched the film God's Own Country for the first time, so we'll be talking about how that went later in the show. Hello. Welcome back to another episode of Seriously. It's a podcast that is now very long running, isn't it, Caroline? We've been doing this for quite a while.
0: Yeah, this is number 116, I want to say.
1: My God, that's a lot of podcasts.
0: It's a lot of pop culture. It makes me feel quite tired.
1: (laughs) Oh, no, I'm invigorated with every new week that passes with yet more pop culture GC goodness. If you've stuck with us this long please recommend us to your friends, family. We have a little spiel in the in the outro every week, but do recommend us to a friend. Do make sure people are subscribing. And that's the way that Seriously can live
0: on. Yeah, seeing new people, discovering it, and hearing from new people as well is what makes it worthwhile, to be honest, when it's like one in the morning and I'm watching another episode of a TV show that I don't really like very much. <laughs> yeah, for and
1: old listeners too, getting in touch. It just makes it so fun and so enjoyable but yeah we're always interested in spreading the podcast love and reaching more people than ever before so i mean you know what to do search s-r-s-l-y in any podcast app on your friend's phone your mother's phone your boyfriend's phone your teacher's phone whoever it is (laughs) and then you can subscribe them by stealth to seriously
0: yeah and if you've been subscribed for a long time and you maybe have nice things to say about the show we would very much appreciate it if you could go and leave us an itunes review i think i've said this before that i think only people who are very strongly moved in either direction leave itunes reviews i.e people who really love a show or people who really really don't yeah. so our itunes page it's a bit tumbleweedy at the moment but it's also this really interesting contrast between people who are like love the show it's amazing listen to every week and people who are like you girls say like too much and your voices are weird (laughs) so
1: I mean maybe true but we don't care
0: (laughs) yes exactly so if any more of the former or also people who just feel like lukewarm to warm about our podcast you know I quite like it but I don't think about it when it's not on just you know go go say that on iTunes it will help cancel out the your voices are weird people
1: thank you so much listeners we love you so, shall we roll on with the podcast Caroline? Yeah, let's do it. It's a good week this week. The first thing we're going to talk about this week is something I've been so excited about for quite some time. La Belle Sauvage, the first novel in a new trilogy by Philip Pullman called The Book of Dust. It inhabits the same universe as the His Dark Materials novels, but it has a different chronology and different central characters. It focuses on two young people, Malcolm and Alice, who work in a pub in northern Oxford. As religious persecution increases in their world, they get drawn into a battle of good against evil and take an extraordinary journey downriver with a baby. So it's ten years before the events of the His Dark Materials trilogy. And we're led to believe that the second two novels in this Book of Dust trilogy will be set ten years after the events of the His Dark Materials novels. So Philip Pullman's been everywhere saying, you know, it's not a s- sequel it's not a prequel, it's an equal because it spans before and after um, the events of His Dark Materials. So this is the kind of prequely part of the new trilogy and as the introduction explains, it's Malcolm and Alice, who are the protagonists. Malcolm is 11 years old and has grown up in the Trout pub where his parents work, and Alice is 15 years old and she's sort of been doing a bit of washing up in the back of the pub in her spare time. And they kind of get sucked into this whole elaborate plot
0: and scheme. Yeah, that's right. And for those of you who don't know Oxford, the Trout is a real place in this world as well as in the His Dark Materials world. Uh, I think we've both been to it several times you went quite recently didn't you yeah
1: I actually went I went to Oxford on Wednesday for the launch of La Belle Sauvage and I went to the trout afterwards because you just kind of have to don't you but yeah they have yeah. peacocks sort of out on the terrace as described in the book it's really quite similar to how it's described in the book
0: and its location is really important to the book because the trout is up to the north of Oxford and it's on the The River Thames, or the Isis, as it's called when it's in and around Oxford, and Malcolm has this canoe called La Belle Sauvage. That's where the the title of the book comes from. And he really likes sort of zipping around the water on his canoe. He often like paddles down into Oxford to meet a very important character called Doctor Hannah Relf, who lends him books and talks to him about what he's been seeing and hearing in the pub. And I think we should probably say, if you haven't read the book yet, skip ahead to the next segment, because we're going to spoil a bit from here on, I'd say. spoilers,
1: spoilers, spoilers, because we want to discuss it properly, don't we? So I think we should go full spoiler.
0: Yes. So hello, people who've already read the book (laughs) and who are still sticking with us. So Malcolm's Canoe is very, very important to the plot of the novel, because a little baby called Lyra, who you might recognise if you've read Pullman's other work, is staying with the nuns at Godstow Priory, which is just near the Trout. And Malcolm's a frequent visitor there. He helps out with odd jobs and he's very friendly with a nun called Sister Fenella, who does lots of cooking. So he gets to know Lyra, who's staying there with the nuns, and they form a sort of sympathy, would you say? Mm -hmm. Their demons get on and he really likes her and he wants the best for her, even though she's just little. Mm -hmm. So then when a great flood comes and the waters rise, and horrible things start happening. Part of the Priory is destroyed, and there are lots of bad men after Lyra, essentially. It's a lot more complicated than that, but let's just say bad men.
1: Yeah, exactly. There's a particular villain that we should, I think, explore in more detail, right? So the main villain of this new book is this creepy guy who we actually first meet in a slightly odd chapter that moves away from Oxford and mm. to, it moves to Sweden um, where we meet Corum van Texel, who you might better know as Fader um from the later book series, who is kind of running away from a mysterious stalker who has a kind of horrible, scary hyena demon and they get into a fight and the demon is left in a very kind of near dead state uh with severe injuries and then we meet this guy again um who in the trout he appears in the trout everyone seems quite freaked out by him we don't know what he's up to or why but we kind of know that he's bad and malcolm runs into the demon sort of pissing in the middle of the street in a way that he finds to be deeply personally threatening and as things develop we realize that basically um this guy who's called Gerard Bonneville is seemingly working for the magisterium or against Lyra for definite anyway. And he's an experimental theologian and experimental theologians are often very bad or very good in his dark materials as a world because they're the people who are interested in dust. And as we know that, from His Dark Materials, some of the real villains of the series are the people who are most interested in Dust.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: We know that Gerard Bonneville wants Lyra because of Dust. He's heard about the prophecy that we know know about from His Dark Materials that says Lyra is going to bring about the end of destiny and therefore he, he wants her. So Malcolm and Alice, when that part of his plan becomes obvious to them, they escape with Lyra in their little canoe.
0: Yes and so then the rest of the book is this incredible journey down the River Thames which I found super interesting given that that's the book I'm writing at the moment. I was is gonna about say this. you
1: must have loved this you you're yeah. all into the Thames and it's many waterways and estuaries and etc so yeah.
0: Yeah that was very exciting my publisher is very excited as well they're like we're gonna get Philip Pullman to do a nice quote for the cover. Oh yes
1: um, yes absolutely.
0: No idea if that will happen, but anyway. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, um, Alice and Malcolm and Lyra are in the little canoe. There's an absolute massive deluge happening, a huge storm, the rivers burst its banks everywhere, and they're just being swept downriver. They're trying to get to London, where Lord Asriel lives, because Malcolm's met him previously. He's this very mysterious shadowy figure, but Malcolm has the impression that he, he wants good things for Lyra, who is his daughter, even though she doesn't live with him or he doesn't really have much to do with her. And so he just thinks, you know, all of Oxford is completely underwater. There's there's this really bad man trying to steal her. The best I can do is take Lyra to her father and hopefully she'll be mm-hmm. safe there. Mm-hmm. And what's really interesting, I wanted to just put a, a clip in here actually of Philip Pullman talking to our colleague Tom on the New Statesman's Other Culture podcast, The Back Half, where he explained a bit about why he wanted to go into so much detail about what it's like to travel with a baby it's wonderful to meet Malcolm and it's also wonderful to meet Lyra as a baby and one of the things that struck me in this book is how much care and attention you pay to her needs as a baby I don't think I've read so many descriptions of nappy changes in (laughs) in any other work of fiction actually which is which is (laughs) remarkable silly question perhaps but I wonder was that were you aware as you were writing that that This is something slightly unusual. No. uh, The same problem and the same necessity came up in an earlier story of mine called The Tiger in the Well, which was set in Victorian London. It's a book about my Victorian heroine, Sally Lockhart, and she's sort of on the run in uh, 1878, I think, in that story. And she has a child who's a bit older than the liar of this book, but she has to do the same things: Nappies have to be changed. Children have to be fed. They have to be kept quiet if they're about to cry at a moment of danger, all that sort of stuff. It struck me as being a very very interesting situation, and I wondered how I would have the resources to deal with it. Fortunately, my characters have far more resources than I do, so they can cope with these things. (laughs) Yeah, because that's a really striking thing about this book, because there are lots of stories where children of different ages end up going on adventures or long journeys together but you don't necessarily get so much detail about changing nappies. Mm -hmm,
1: Totally and I think it's a great way of exploring the characters of Malcolm and Alice a bit more because they are very nurturing children and they're very you know deeply interested in Lyra's safety and concerned for her in a way that I guess you associate more with adults Um, and it really helped me kind of flesh out the character of Alice a bit because she's kind of introduces this very ratty, very mm. spiky... I don't know. She's she's a bit, like, aggressive almost at the beginning. And so not something... Not a kind of girl that you'd associate with maternal feeling. But she's very practical and she really gets on with looking after Lyra when it counts and... She gets a lot more depth through her interactions with Lyra, which is nice.
0: Yeah, she does. And it's the way that she and Malcolm really bond when they're on this journey, because they have several arguments about where they're going and why and all this kind of stuff. But they absolutely have common cause when it comes to keeping Lyra safe and dry and well. So, and there are several times when it's the more dangerous choice, say, to stop and make a fire on the bank so that they can heat some milk mm. for Lyra. But they do it anyway because they think it's what they have to do. It's the only way. Um, Philip Pullman, you know, he gets his books get described sometimes as fantasy, sometimes it's science fiction, a sort of mixture of all of that. But one thing I did find really interesting about this book was that he's borrowed quite extensively, I feel, from the almost medieval romance tradition mm-hmm. for this. So... There are these little interludes as they're on their grand journey down the Thames where they say go to an enchanted island and meet a strange fairy woman yeah, or they end up in a sunken garden that seems to be peopled with strange memories Mm -hmm. and that kind of stuff. And I know Rowan Williams in his review for the New Statesman said that actually those were the bits he liked least about the book that he found them a bit random, but I thought they were amazing. Yeah, it's
1: interesting, isn't it? The way that he definitely borrows, he says up top, I think, where he quotes maybe the final lines of the books are quotes from the Fairy Queen. And you do feel that kind of rambling, going off on tangents style of storytelling or even like, I don't know, like the Arthur stories.
0: Yeah, it's very like Mallory's Mort d'Arthur. Yeah. Um, But there's also bits and, you know, C.S. Lewis was also very influenced, as was Tolkien, by... Sort of medieval romances and that kind of stuff there's a lot in common in those scenes between parts of the narnia story and also have you ever read the lord of the rings books
1: i did as a kid i read the first one and a half and then i didn't finish them we,
0: you know that whole bit where the hobbits meet tom bombadil
1: no <laughs>
0: oh well so peter jackson just cut this out of the film's for the obvious reason I think that it just would be really long and wouldn't really work on screen. But so as a result this whole like segment of the Lord of the Rings story has sort of dropped out of the collective imagination. Mm. But there's a whole section I think it's towards the end of the second book or maybe the first book where he meets the uh, Frodo meets this strange character called Tom Bombadil like in a cave under a hill and it's like a long digression that doesn't really lead anywhere or make any sense with the rest of it but it's just there for the pleasure of it which I think is a little bit like what happens in I mean they're brief chapters but they are a little discursion away from the main narrative
1: yeah and it's funny because actually the first whole half of this book is very low on fantasy I mean obviously Mm, yeah it's part of this fantasy world that we're already quite familiar with so it doesn't feel that fantastical like you open the book and you're reading about demons, that probably felt a lot more fantastical opening His Dark Materials than it does opening this book. Um, But the fact that we stay very much in Lyra's Oxford or in Lyra's world with working within the framework of the world we know for at least the first half of this book, I think means that it doesn't feel anywhere near as fantastical as the His Dark Materials series, which is actually something I think I quite liked because I loved the Northern Lights and found the subtle knife and the amber spyglass quite quickly becoming too complicated almost for me. Mm-hmm. Or too, too, There was just so much going on in terms of different worlds and strange creatures. And Whereas this is a lot more like a story that would make sense without any of the fantasy stuff. It could just be about two kids trying to save another kid from a kind of slightly menacing government body. And that would work without any of the demons and so on and dust.
0: Yeah, exactly. I share your feelings actually about the His Dark Materials trilogy. I did really love it, but I love Northern Lights the most because I really like exploring the slightly different but almost the same world that Mm -hmm. he's created. So Mm -hmm. all the stuff at the beginning when Lyra and Roger are exploring Jordan College and it's almost like the Oxford that I know but not quite. And you're seeing that all from through the eyes of children and that kind of stuff that's all brilliant and that's what the first half of this book is like yeah because malcolm actually has quite a set little life and a routine you know he goes to school and he works with his parents in the pub in the evenings and then he takes his canoe out for trips he goes and visits this academic hannah ralph who lends him books and you know so he has his little orbit and he stays in it but it's you know he he's a really interesting character and he takes a lot of pride in doing work well and being good at carpentry and looking after his boat properly and he's a really satisfying character to read about so then when things all start to get a bit loopy and magical you still feel grounded in that character of Malcolm because he's so wrenched away from all of that like there's one part where he and Alice both I think don't they just like sit down and bawl Hmm. because they're just they're really homesick and they're like, what are we doing? Where are we? What's happening? Totally. That's one big difference with when Lyra heads off on her big epic journey in Northern Lights, she doesn't really look back. Mm. You know, she doesn't have that. That's part of what makes her an interesting heroine is that she doesn't, I mean, although Jordan College is her home, she doesn't really feel homesick.
1: I think she misses the Egyptians more than anything, doesn't she? Yeah. Which is who are travel travellers by nature themselves one thing that i think is interesting about this book as well is that it has all the kind of hallmarks of a really great kind of school school mm. set book or like a kids adventure book in that it's got like malcolm as a very very curious character lead character who is Bland enough to kind of not distract from the narrative. Like he's meeting all these interesting people, and you're seeing them through his eyes, and he's very curious about them, but he doesn't distract from them. Then you've got these kind of um, very sinister organizations, the League of Saint Alexander, That's which is so dark. This kind of spy organization for children to spy on their parents. So the church go into schools and they say, kids, tell us if your parents are non-believers. Tell us if they're committing heresy or, you know, blasphemy or anything. And they get these little badges that they wear proudly. And it does remind you of something like, um, I can't remember what they're even called in Harry Potter. The Inquisitorial Squad. Yeah, the Inquisitorial Squad. I feel like so many children's books have, like, evil kids in badges. That's, like, such a great thing. But it
0: also has parallels and i think it was rowan williams who pointed this out has parallels with the beginnings of the hitler youth yeah that that's kind of how fascist youth movements start off as a network of informants and they often target you know children who aren't very happy at home or children who are you know feel a bit like they're misfits or whatever because oh you know you can belong to something bigger and you can have a badge and a uniform and all we need you to do to help you belong is just you know tell us when you're Dad, you know, meets his Jewish friend or whatever like that, totally, so it's deeply sinister,
1: yeah, and then we've got this very creepy villain who's also very charismatic, which is what we had in in Mrs. Coulter and arguably in Lord asriel yeah, in the other three books, you know, Gerard Bonneville, he charms both Malcolm and Alice when he first mm. meets them, and that's kind of what makes him so threatening and there's also the fact that when I finished reading this book, the first thing I wanted was a map. I wanted a map of their journey and where they'd been and the links between the flood and different Mm. kind of parts of Oxford, which is how I felt reading the first *His dark materials book. I wanted a map of Lyra's Oxford and we did get one with the book he did called Lyra's Oxford. So there obviously was that taste for that. And, you know, everyone wants a map of Hogwarts that, you know, the map is so, you know, you want, you want to, you so want to go into that world and be with those characters and it ticks all those, all those boxes just amazingly. It's
0: interesting you mention Lord Asriel as a villain there. It's such a fascinating like reading experience to read La Belle Sauvage having read his dark materials. And in the same way you can with any prequel, you can like look at the, the younger versions of the characters on the page and be like, I know what happens to you, I know what you turn into, I know what you do later on. Um, and that colours your perception. So even as I'm reading about Lord Asriel, you know, walking up and down in the moonlight in the Priory Gardens, you know, whispering to his baby daughter and Malcolm's perceiving him as this, you know, great loving father in this sort of safe haven and all the rest of it. I'm thinking, I know what you did to Roger. Like, I I know, I know what you're going to end up doing by structuring it like this. Pullman has he, you know, I get that experience, but equally someone who hasn't read his dark materials. Could read it and have a completely different feeling about Lord Asriel. So yeah, there's a really interesting like double view of some of the characters in there.
1: Yeah, I think that's so true. And I also think it's interesting how, although we've gone we've gone back further in time, I feel like some of the themes have got darker in this book. There's like a thread of sexual violence and mm, yeah. some of yeah. We know that Gerard Bonneville has been. Kind of arrested for sexual crimes and he has kind of run-ins with both alice and some of the nuns and in a way that is like quite disturbing and i think perhaps it works because if you were very young you could read this without necessarily fully unknowing like it's not graphic ever it wouldn't i don't think it would really disturb a child because it doesn't really go into for example like what rape is but you just know that there's something off about him and that the way he's interacting with women is not okay. And that's mm. creepy.
0: Yeah, very much so. There are a couple of scenes in particular where as reading it as an adult, that you know exactly what's happening. But it's a very clever way that Pullman's done that, I think, because he hasn't you know, shied away from the realities of violence against women and he hasn't created a fantasy world where everything's wonderful and women mm-hmm. never get raped. But at the same, which is just realistic and I think appropriate, but at the same time, he hasn't, you know, tried to write rape scenes in a children's book, <laughs> yes. if that makes
1: sense. Totally. So I mean, they are there, but they're just handled very well. Yeah. Which is good. I know there's also a lot of swearing in this book. <laughs> I've seen some Daily Mail headlines really screeching to the rooftops about the fact oh, really? that there's some, there's some swearing in there. Yeah, which is funny, <laughs> Um, but nothing that. Any that you know, a robust kid can't handle, so yeah, I loved it. I'm really excited to see where the rest of the series goes and will it get even more dark? Who knows?
0: Who knows? Yeah, when. Philip Pullman was talking to Tom he said he's finished writing book two but he still needs to edit it mm. and he hopes that it'll be out next year but he can't guarantee that he has, a gr- he has a
1: great writing routine doesn't he where he writes three pages longhand every morning and then the rest yeah. of the day he has to himself which just sounds like the absolute dream
0: yeah I would really encourage listeners to go over and listen to that interview actually there's a really great moment where his dogs try and interrupt <laughs> um, because he was talking yeah. on skype on an iPad from his house in Oxford. It was really good. So yeah, if you go search the back half um, in iTunes, you'll find it there.
1: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care.
0: Now we're going to talk about Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which is a television musical comedy created by and starring Rachel Bloom. It follows Bloom's character of Rebecca Bunch, a highly educated lawyer with mental health issues, who leaves her high-flying life in New York and moves to West Covina, California, after a chance meeting with a teenage boyfriend on the street. At intervals in the ensuing plot, Rebecca imagines those around her bursting into song as a way of processing her feelings and moving the plot along. The third series began airing on Netflix on the 13th of October, and I think we've had two episodes so far.
1: We've had two episodes so far. So we're discussing season three, so there are serious spoilers for seasons one and two. So for those of you who want to hear those, I'll do a quick explanation. Rebecca and Josh were getting married after many twists and turns in the plot to get us to that point, and Josh... Uh, left uh, Rebecca stranded at the altar because he decided he couldn't cope with it and went to try and become a priest instead. So we're now at a point where Rebecca is basically thirsty for revenge on Josh. And the idea was very much set up at the end of the second season that the, the new season would be a kind of like evil revenge plot Um, so that's quite exciting and Mm. so far we haven't got very far in terms of what revenge is going to happen to josh in the first two episodes
0: yes so as i think we talked about on our was it on our revisit special i originally recommended crazy ex-girlfriend to you i know then then i went mental then you went mental and watched all of it and i stopped watching partway through season one i have massively got back into it in the last month or so and like binged the whole of series two in less than a week. Yeah. And I don't know why I ever stopped because it's fantastic. It
1: is great. Isn't it? Like there's lots of things that I don't like about it, but the stuff that I do like about it is like so good that I can't like control that I have to just binge it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no exactly. So yeah, I'm finally fully caught up and enjoying season three. And all the things that I really liked about it before are still there so the a lot of the music is still absolutely brilliant the jokes are really witty i really like the i really liked in series two the like girl group dynamic between rebecca valencia and heather and that still seems to be a thing i'm less a fan i always have been less a fan of the daryl white josh storyline um I find it quite touching. It's quite touching, but I don't know. Generally, I'm less interested in them. So, yeah. But overall, so far, Series 3 has lived up to my expectations. Particularly, people might have seen, even if you haven't watched the episodes, one of the songs, was it from the first episode, went a bit viral in the kind of um, Harvey Weinstein Twitter Mm. storm, which is this song called Let's Generalise About Men.
1: yeah. Though I, part of me is like, wait, hang on, I actually really believe that men are like this. Because <laughs> <So, laughs> um, the joke is like, you know, obviously not all men are terrible, but there, there's a really great moment at the end. The punchline is, um, you know, someone saying like, wait, my son's a man. Because they're mm-hmm. like, all men are rapists. And then she's like, but my son's a man. And they're like, yeah, your son's a rapist. He's going <laughs> to grow up to be a rapist. And I like that because obviously people just don't want to confront like patriarchy and how it interacts with their children. But so that was quite funny. Um, for me, I absolutely adore the musical, the kind of like old-timey, golden-age musical parodies in this stuff. Mm, like, yeah, I just, I just love that kind of music and that kind of sing-song. Are you thinking of Josh in the church tap dancing? Yeah, so that's that was a really good one from the new series. I mean, obviously, like there is just so many iconic ones throughout the whole show, like the ballad that Rebecca sings. That's like you stupid bitch like that's just <laughs> iconic i sing that to myself all the time and you know like the romantic scenes between rebecca and greg r.i.p greg oh um, I miss greg <laughs> i know i miss greg so much so i love those kinds of songs but that some of the musical parodies i could do without one of i don't like the news theme tune no i don't either a mishmash of different song parodies like there's a bit of rap in there there's a bit of pop in there there's a bit of country in there um, and I just like I just don't care for it. Whereas last season's was this very sort of like nineteen twenties flapper, oh, I'm really cutesy, like Marilyn Monroe style thing that I just like could not get enough of. And I think yep. actually might be why I binged it so fast because I wanted to watch the theme tune so like in such quick succession. I'm exactly the same. I sing the theme tune to myself
0: under my breath all the time just when I'm walking places it's so pitch perfect as a parody even to the like slightly comedy New York accent she does on some of
1: the vowels yeah exactly and the blam at the end like everything about it is so funny
0: yeah and yeah so I do really miss the theme tune I yeah I'm similarly not a fan of the new series 3 theme tune because it's like a kind of super group made up of different Rebeccas in different
1: genres yeah and And like two are men and two are women it's like very odd it's very Um, odd but yeah, so I could, you know, for me, it's like more of the old time Hollywood glamour stuff and less of the kind of like weird song parody. So I even really liked, I think it's um, Rachel Bloom's real life husband who plays someone she works with. I hope I've got oh, that really? right. If I haven't, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, who plays the guy who like can't make his wife orgasm. Oh, um,
0: yeah. And oh, he got kind of guy. ballad
1: about that, which I even enjoyed that, even though it's like quite random and not really to do with the plot and not that funny. It, but the music is just genuinely really good. So. Do you mean the, <laughs> that was the, quite um,
0: that? the song that he sang, which was a Les Mis parody?
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Empty chairs and empty tables, but instead yeah. about the fact that he can't make his wife orgasm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That was um, extremely funny. I love that stuff. So yeah, and then in terms of plot, I feel like we still haven't fully got there yet. So they just started to plan some revenge against Josh by like, uh, Rebecca, sorry, I always want to call her Rachel because Rachel Bloom is the actress and creator. Mm. Um, Rebecca starts plotting with her kind of evil boss to take Josh down and it goes way too far and her evil boss starts trying to like ruin Josh's family's life as a way to hurt Josh but that's sort of as far as we've we've got really with the revenge plot line so i don't really know how long it will continue into the series whether it will be the whole series because crazy ex-girlfriend is a show that does do these quite extreme gear changes um at different points in the seasons
0: i thought it was a pretty violent gear change when after like you know most of series two like oh josh is an asshole how could josh walk out and rebecca oh like now me and josh are getting married Mm -hmm. um so, yeah, you, you do sometimes get plot whiplash. In that sense, it reminds me of Jane the Virgin.
1: Yeah, which how, is a direct kind of parody of telenovelas. yeah, in, and their kind of whiplash plotting.
0: Yeah, so it definitely does have an element of that to it. So, which, it, which is pleasing, actually, because it means that while we're, you know, on this revenge storyline at the moment, we really have no idea where it's going to go yeah. next. Um, yeah, so what is interesting is now I have to wait for new episodes I know which, which
1: isn't fun is it isn't fun
0: I think it it's because right. it airs on the CW in America and so it like appears on Netflix a bit like Riverdale does this as well it appears on Netflix each week after it's aired on the CW yeah so. it's part
1: of their syndication deal with the CW exactly um, yeah which, which is, is kind annoying, of annoying but, yeah. I mean you understand how it happens yeah there's the, this plot line with um the kind of sexual relationship between rebecca and her boss is one that i'm actually quite into because i do think mm. they have quite good chemistry it shouldn't i don't it feels like it shouldn't work they seem quite mismatched but somehow it it works and i like i love that when you get very unlikely chemistry between performers on tv mm. and it, that's also what i
0: liked here. how the weird masquerade ball that he set up was like a bad Fifty Shades of Grey parody. Yeah, um, it was very yeah. funny, really funny. So, so yeah, I'm really loving Crazy Ex-Girlfriend like more than I was even the last time we talked about oh, it. Oh great, um, I'm so glad. So um, yeah, I highly recommend that seriously listeners get into it. <laughs> So last week, Anna and I decided to take up multiple listener recommendations and finally catch the film God's Own Country, which has been on a limited release for a while now, but seems to be finally disappearing from cinemas. So We really wanted to take the chance to grab it. And after we said we were going to do it, we had a really good email from Marcus who said... A dear friend recommended God's Own Country a few weeks ago, but with its limited release, I hadn't had a chance to see it. Spurred on by your upcoming Seriously review, and wanting to have watched it before you talked about it. Good, good plan, Marcus. Glad you're doing your homework. I ventured tonight to a screening in a somewhat odd little single screen cinema within a leisure centre, not quite in Northampton, where I watched it with exactly 12 other people.
1: That's so sweet.
0: I thought it was a delightful moving little film with great performances throughout. I left with a warm glow wishing Johnny and Giorgi well in their future artisan used making endeavours. Please be kind to
1: it. <laughs> That's such a lovely email. Um, I would say we are going to be kind to it because uh, we both really enjoyed it, didn't we?
0: Yeah. So I had a not dissimilar experience to Marcus in that it was showing at this place called Fact in Liverpool, which is like a kind of art centre which has an affiliation with the Picture house Cinema. Sounds very trendy. It was, yeah, it is.
1: I Sounds it more trendy than the Leisure <laughs> Centre.
0: <laughs> yeah, but it was in this screen called The Box, which is literally just a giant box with a cinema screen in it that they've put loads of sofas in. Wow. But they're all kind of freestanding. So I went in and there was, I think, four other people in there. And then two people left halfway through. Oh my gosh. Which I thought was very rude of them, but yeah so it was just me and two other people in this like sea of sofas inside a big box at what point did they leave was it a
1: particularly i don't know um no i think
0: they left at the the scene where they go it was it was maybe at least an hour in the scene you know where they go to the pub
1: yeah um and all the bad stuff happens Mm, that's kind of sad that yeah then leave then well interesting anyway we should
0: we should say what this film is actually about. It's set up in the Yorkshire Dales and it follows a young guy called Johnny who works on his dad's farm looking after sheep and cows. Um, his dad's recently had a stroke so can't get about very well so he's feeling the pressure having I mean, to keep everything going with the farm. Um, also his dad's quite like abrupt and non-communicative with him mm-hmm. so he's feeling quite angry about that and his nan lives with them as well and she kind of takes care of them both and because he's struggling with the farm work they get a sort of short-term laborer to come and help him out Mm -hmm. who turns out to be this romanian guy called Georgi, who is a very experienced farm worker really knows what he's on about he's also i think a bit older than johnny and Extremely handsome. Yeah, it sort of goes from there. Really, it's so handsome. So he, oh my, my god! My boyfriend
1: kept referring to him as a Zara model, which I think is quite accurate. <laughs> he's like very, he's yeah, like very he's handsome so in a very kind of rural, bearded knitwear way. Um, there is a lot mm-hmm. of great knitwear in this movie, more generally. Um, so yeah, they kind of. They don't get on to start with Johnny's pretty racist towards this poor guy um, because he's got all these kind of growing resentments about his lonely life, difficult life. And uh, then they it kind of explodes when they're up on a hill somewhere and they end up having some like amazing, angry, weird sex. And then from that point, it sort of becomes mm-hmm. a very kind of sweet, romantic story about them sort of spending lots of time on their own together and as you say there's kind of a moment where it all goes wrong for them but I think it's it's very very cute for the majority of the screen time from that point on yeah it
0: really is and one of the strands that runs through it is the fact that you know Johnny it's hard to say exactly what his situation is he he's not exactly properly out but he's also not not out in the sense that he is having like casual sex with guys he meets meets at livestock auctions mm-hmm. um but people and, seem and to know seems to know but no one really talks about it yeah. i guess is maybe typical for the kind of community he lives in perhaps but anyway um his romantic encounters that we've seen up to the point where he meets Gilgi are very like rough and ready and not at all like tender or affectionate or anything mm-hmm. like that so throughout the film you see him kind of go on this journey where he's like okay so it is nice to like kiss people it is nice to be tender and affectionate and look after someone else and be looked after and for me that was almost one of the best bits about the film was this guy who had so much aggression and so much anger at learning to let somebody love him
1: yeah and they're just I think one of the great things about this film as well is the character of Gilgi, who is like very emotionally intelligent, very um quiet, you know i think sometimes you can get portrayals of people who like don't speak english as a first language in movies and they're mm. very kind of like not with it because they can't understand what's happening because they don't have a great command of the language and so they end up in this situation where they're kind of a bit clueless and one of the things that's really nice about this character is that he knows way more about what's going on than anyone else in the film because oh, yeah. he's so much more in touch with his emotions and he's witnessing these kind of like difficult dynamics between father and son and grandmother and grandson and 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 kind kind of helping um johnny to figure out how to like deal with his emotions in an appropriate way and Mm. um that's really the kind of the story of the film isn't it it's johnny learning how to kind of like cope with his emotions better and like so when we first meet him he's drinking very heavily as a way to cope and then later in the film he sort of he just ends up with different outlets basically and is able to talk about how he feels a lot more um which is great. It's quite it's it's a very simple film in some ways, but it's just so so loving and so sweet. And there're just m- moments from it that will stick with me like the two of them kind of like sat like in the bath together. Or, like, there's quite a Mm. sweet scene where they're both naked in this, like, weird kind of hut where they've been looking after these sheep. And Johnny's completely naked and Georgie's kind of, like, naked from the waist down apart from his nice Sara jumper.
0: He's wearing his lovely jumper, yeah. yeah.
1: So it's, like, really, really cute images like that. And, like, there's a beautiful scene where after Johnny's dad goes into hospital because he is very sick, he comes home and Georgie's, like, made him some, like, cheap but very nice pasta and like yeah. set the table and put like you know like a little can of beer next to the plates and the knives and forks and like it's like tasting his pasta to see if it's got enough salt on it and then doing the salt for him and that for me was just like a really beautiful portrayal of a loving relationship it's just so cute
0: <laughs> mm, yeah it it is lovely and also the the backdrop to this Film is the incredible scenery of the sort of Yorkshire Fells, and you both get the sense of how beautiful it is, but also how tough it is to live there. Mm. You know, farming there is really hard and really difficult, and life isn't easy. And that I think that's what's going to make this film stay with me is that yes, it has this lovely romantic storyline at its heart, but also there's no sense that like they're riding off into the sunset. If they're going to try and make a living on that farm, it's going to be incredibly hard.
1: Totally. The performances in this film, I thought, were amazing. Gemma Jones, who's like always so good, plays the yes. grandmother really, really well. But Josh O'Connor, who um, hasn't done much other, I think this is maybe his first movie. He's been in the Dorals on mm, yeah. on BBC, but. Yeah, he's so good in this. Full disclosure, it's not name dropping. I hope, because I don't know Josh O'Connor, but I know his parents, um, <laughs> who are lovely. Shout out to Josh O'Connor's lovely parents. But I did genuinely just think he was amazing. You know, just a mm. great performance.
0: So yeah, if you can still catch God's Own Country, I think it's still in a few independent cinemas and stuff, and I'm sure it'll be available on DVD or something quite soon. Definitely do. It's highly worth your totally.
1: time. So for next week... I have a recommendation. Okay. So this was recommended to me by Laura Snapes, who we love, and it's from creator Amy Sherman Palladino, who made Gilmore Girls, which is obviously a huge, seriously favourite. But Amy Sherman Palladino, instead of doing a new series of Gilmore Girls, is doing a new show on Amazon, Amazon Prime Video, or Amazon Instant Videos, I think it might be called, Um, is, so the show is called The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and Amazon Instant Video do these seasons of pilots. I think we've maybe talked about some of them before. So like I Love Dick, for example, was part of their pilot season before it became a fully commissioned series. So the pilot of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel is available to watch on Amazon, even though the new series doesn't come out, um, I think, until mid-November. But it is commissioned and made and ready to go in mid-November. So I think we should have a little watch of the pilot, or you should have a little watch of the pilot, I've seen it, um, so that we're ready for when the marvellous Mrs Maisel comes in November, because... I mean, it's Amy Sherman Palladino. We're definitely going to watch it, right?
0: Yeah, I'm so excited. I saw the trailer for this quite recently and thought, yes, yes, yes. I really want to watch this. So, yeah, I'm definitely up for being fully prepped when the full season (laughs) drops in November. So
1: we'll talk about this more next week. But the premise is about Mrs. Maisel herself, who is a uh, married woman who sort of has done everything right in her life she lives in new york in the 50s and her life is kind of totally perfect you know she sneaks out of bed every morning and puts a full face of makeup on before her husband even wakes up and then she pretends she's just sort of gently woken up and um (laughs) then her husband who's just an aspiring stand-up comedian says he's leaving her and her life sort of unravels from there um And it's about her trying to cope with that and be an independent person, which is just like a great premise, isn't it? Already. I already love it. And she kind of ends up falling into her husband's profession by the end of the first episode and trying her her own hand as as a female stand up comic. I mean, could it get any more delicious? No. So hopefully, (laughs) hopefully you'll enjoy it as much as I did. Yeah, I'm really excited for this. thanks for listening to this episode of Seriously the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman
0: if you enjoyed the show why not subscribe to make sure you never miss another episode we're available in all the usual places you get podcasts including on Apple Podcasts where you could leave us a rating and a review if you fancy it makes us happy and it also helps other people find the show
1: if you'd like to come and see us in person check out the events page of our website seriouslypod.com events details of our next pop culture quiz and anything else we're doing will appear there
0: we're available many other places on the internet including on Twitter, Facebook and Tumblr we're seriously Pod on all of them follow us to keep up with what we're up to or to chat to other listeners about things you've enjoyed on the show.
1: We love getting your recommendations for things we should feature on the show or hearing your thoughts on what we've already discussed get in touch on social media or email us on seriouslypod at gmail.com.
0: And if you feel strongly that more pop culture needs to be taken seriously spread the word and tell your friends and family about the podcast